week we asked a question, or maybe we stated, the Lord will deliver us. And who will deliver us in any circumstance but the Lord? I want to start this morning by reading uh, from a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan uh, prayers and songs, devotions. And uh, this one's called In Prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read part of it for you. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after thee with intensity and long with vehement thirst to live to thee. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on the way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are as of little significance as the puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exalts with lively thoughts at what thou art doing for thy church. And I long that thou shouldest get thyself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted up above the frowns and flatteries of life and haste to heavenly joys. Entering into the eternal world, I can give myself to thee with all my heart to be thine forever. And in prayer, I can place my concerns in thy hands to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own. Today, we read a story about a man who prays. And this man who prays has gone through many circumstances and distresses in his life that has led him to such a situation that he can do nothing else but pray. Anything else he has done has failed him. Any kind of bribery or attempt to build himself up or protect himself has gone away. There is nothing this man can do but pray. And I hope that as we read this story together that it doesn't take a time, a season of horrible unrest and trouble for you to get to the place that Hezekiah finds himself. But I, I hope instead that this story will be a warning and a call and an exhortation to us that we should be like the Puritan who wrote that we long for God in prayer. And in prayer, we find ourselves as nothing. And all the cares of this world seem to be as a puff of wind when I come to my Lord in prayer. So let's read the story of Hezekiah and his prayer. Um, just to catch us up to speed, and I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, last week, we talked about a lot of things. Uh, we talked about two armies who were encamped against each other. Really, we talked about the Assyrians. And at the time, the Assyrians were the major power of the world. They were conquering all all of the land that was in that region. We looked at a map of that even last time. And, and now they are left with a little tiny place called Judah. They've conquered everywhere else that they needed to. And now they've come to Judah and they've actually taken one of their major cities, the second major city in Judah. They've already taken Lachish. And in fact, during the siege of Lachish, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sends one of his military officials to Jerusalem, to King Hezekiah. And 
And this guy, he begins to mock Hezekiah. He begins to mock God. And he says, do you really think that you can stand against me, the king of the universe, the one who has taken all the other nations and all the other gods, and you think you can stand? You are nothing. Just give up already and come to me and make peace with me. And so Hezekiah didn't hear the words himself, but he sent officials to meet their officials. And we are picking up in the story where Hezekiah's officials have just met with the Assyrian officials, and they've been mocking God, mocking Hezekiah, and now those officials are bringing word back to Hezekiah, and they're telling him of all the mockery that that the king of Assyria has said. So uh, that's where we pick up in verse 1. There's so much more to that story. Uh, And again, I hope that you will, uh, if you weren't here, go back and and, uh, catch up on that story so you can find context. Isaiah 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that is all the mockery from the king of Assyria, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shibna the secretary and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, who sent his master, the king of Assyria. He has sent to mock the living God, and he will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Okay, so we remember the mockery, Isaiah 36, 15. If you can just look back there, Isaiah 36, 15. This is what the Rabshakeh, the military official, said to King Hezekiah. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let your king lead you astray by making you think your God is something that he's not. That kind of summarizes the mockery. And so we have Eliakim, Shebna, Joah. They leave the meeting with a report from from the Rabshakeh and... uh, Hezekiah says, and he goes to the house of the Lord, and he says, Today is a day, surely, of what? Distress, and of rebuke, and of disgrace. The question we really need to ask and put in context is, it was a day of distress for who? It was a day of disgrace for who? It was a day of rebuke for who? Who is he referring to here? Distress. Of course, means trouble, right? Or anxiety. Isaiah 33, 2. Just remember the words that were spoken here. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Remember when we talked about that verse, that in our times of trouble, there is only one place you can genuinely run to for help. And it is God and God alone. And so even though we pray, God, be my help, and I can say that when everything's good. Lord, be my help. You are my help in times of trouble. But of course, when trouble comes, we tend to not look to God for help. But we tend to take things into our own power and try everything else we can do to feel safe and comfortable. So this was a day of distress for Hezekiah himself and for the people of Judah. It was the rebuke for them as well. Of course, this means punishment. Listen to Hosea 5, verses 13 through 15. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria... They sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. So we know that the northern kingdom, Ephraim, was already taken by the king of Assyria. They're gone at this point. They've been led into captivity, and the ones who were there were mixed with uh, the Assyrian people. And so uh, 
they're gone now. And then it says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, I will tear and go away and I will carry off and no one shall rescue. And listen to what he says. This is God speaking to Judah. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is what God wants from Hezekiah and for the people of Judah is that in their distress, in their trouble, when the great army of the world is encamping around them and mocking them and there is nothing they can do, in your distress, I want you to seek me. That's what God wants. And sometimes we have to be taken down into the depths of distress in order to we realize there's nothing else we can do. So now I guess I have to, by default, go to God. There's nothing else. This is what he wants from the people of Judah, from King Hezekiah. This is what he wants from you. Don't you know that in your time of distress, it proves your faith in who God actually is? When these things come about, what do you run to first? Where do you go? We run to God, and this is what he desires from us, is that we would run straight, straight to him and don't deviate from the path. This is what he desires for us. So it was a day of rebuke for their guilt. It was a day of disgrace. Isaiah 22, 8 through 11. It's prophecy leading up to this moment. He says, He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw the breaches in the city of David were many. You collected waters in the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the upper pool. But you did not look to him who did it. So he's saying, when the army came against you, you did everything in your power to fortify your walls. You made weapons. You did everything you could. But here's what God says. But you, you did all this, but you did not look to him who did it. Who is he talking about? God himself. You didn't look to me or see him who planned it long ago. Who planned this invasion? Who did it? God himself. Remember uh, Isaiah 10. 2 Chronicles 32, 2 through 5 kind of tells us a little bit about what Hezekiah did, just recounting the history of it. It says, when, when, King Hezekiah, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers, his mighty men. Stop. What does he do immediately in his time of distress? He goes to worldly things, earthly things. It says, he planned with his officers, mighty men, to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city that helped them. A great many people were gathered. They stopped the springs at the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water here? He sent to work resolutely and build up the wall that has broken down, and he raised its towers upon it. The outside of the wall, he built another wall, and he strengthened uh, the Milo and the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. Did any of this help him? Is any of this what God would have desired from him? The answer, of course, is no. So his initial response in his day of trouble, Hezekiah sets out. He does everything he can in his own power to prepare for this situation. Hezekiah tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the temple. Now, this seems like a good gesture, doesn't it? It says, back in verse 1, King Hezekiah, when he heard it, when he heard of the mockery from the king of Assyria, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went to the house of the Lord. Sounds like a good response. The tearing of the clothes, the covering with sackcloth, this is, this is mourning. This is a symbol of mourning. 
This is a, a religious rite, a tradition that they would have. In a time of mourning, tear your clothes, cover yourself in sackcloth, go and weep and mourn before the Lord. So this is what he does. What it doesn't say that he did was cry out to the Lord from his distress and in his heart. It doesn't say he did that. It says he did a bunch of religious rites. Time of mourning, tear my clothes. Go to the house of the Lord. Send people over to Isaiah the prophet. But what we don't see here that we will see later is that Hezekiah's heart was engaged in his distress and that he was seeking the Lord from his heart. So what does that already tell us? In your time of distress, you may retreat to a religious rite, but is that what God wants from you? For example, something happens here. You lose a job. You, you, something horrible happens at home or whatever it is for you that comes into distress. And what do you do? Oh, I better start going back to church. Right? I better call the pastor and have him pray for me. Now, are, are those things in themselves wrong? Is that what God desires of your heart, though? He desires that you would cry out to him in your distress. And if your heart is truly crying out in distress, you may do those other things as well. But those other things are not what God wants. He doesn't want the external. He wants the internal. And if he has the internal, what will flow from that? The external, right? If he has your heart, you're going to do those things. So here's what we see Hezekiah do. He's in his time of distress. He goes, he tears his clothes. And um, let me read one more passage for you. Isaiah 22, 12 through 13. In that day, in the day of your distress, here's what God wants. In that day, the Lord of hosts calls for, here's what God calls for, weeping and mourning and boldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, what did he have instead? Joy, gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking, saying, let's eat for tomorrow we die. So might as well live our day doing the best we can since we're going to die anyway. That's also a bad response to your distress <laughs> is to just do whatever. Well, whatever's going to be is going to be anyway, so might as well just do something that makes me happy in the meantime. But sometimes we do that to cover up the pain of what we're going through. Sometimes this is when people retreat to old habits and addictions. They remove themselves from people and from communities. Certainly they remove themselves from church. They remove themselves from the community of believers who can hold them accountable for their life. Yes, that's what they do. They retreat. Uh, bad stuff's going on. Listen, I'm just going to kind of ignore it and just enjoy my life because bad things are going to happen no matter what. Wrong response. Let's continue on. Isaiah 37, 5 through 7. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, so remember Hezekiah wants... Uh, Hezekiah wants Isaiah to pray for the remnant that's left in Jerusalem, the remnant that hasn't been taken by the army. And he says, maybe he'll hear you, Isaiah, man of God. Maybe He's probably not going to hear, he's not going to listen to me right now because um, I'm a little too far gone. But maybe he'll listen to you. Say to your master, this is Isaiah saying to, to Hezekiah's men, say to your master, say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him. He will hear a rumor, and he'll return to his own land, and I will make him fall by, his own sword, by the sword in his own land. So God sends back a word of comfort. Notice what Isaiah does not do, by the way. Hezekiah says, go tell Isaiah to pray. But that's not what he does. He immediately has a word from the Lord, and he sends it back. Because this is already something that Hezekiah has been told. 
He's already been told, don't be afraid. How many times do I have to tell you to not be afraid of this? I'm going to deliver you. I'll tell you again. Hezekiah, don't be afraid. You will be delivered. God will uphold his promises. His people will not be destroyed. God has plans that he's fulfilling, and nothing that anybody on earth can do can stop those plans. Believe me, Israel will not be wiped out. Trust me. It's not going to happen. The city will not be taken. So he promises two things. One, that the king of Assyria will hear a rumor and he's going to return to his own land. We'll see that happen in the story. Second, he will die in his own land, the king of Assyria. And we will also see that happen. Okay, let's continue on. Isaiah 37, 8 through 13. So the Rabshakeh, who was the military official from the Assyrian army, the Rabshakeh returned and he found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king of Le had left Lachish. Now remember, Lachish, that second major city in Judah, um, he had just trampled it down and now they moved on to the next city, which was 10 miles north. So now they're 30 miles away from Jerusalem at this point. The big army is only 30 miles away. Okay. Now, the king heard concerning Tirica, king of Cush, that is the Assyrian king, heard from Tirica, king of Cush, that he is sent out to fight against you. This is the rumor that God promised that the king of Assyria was going to hear. We'll read it again, verse 9. This is the rumor that's going to make him go back to his own land. Now, the king heard concerning Tirica, king of Cush, he is sent out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the kings of Assyria. Behold, you who have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, uh, Rezif, and the people of Eden who were at Telesar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Serevaim and the king of Hena or the king of Eva? Tirica, king of Cush, he was pharaoh of the Egyptian dynasty. That kind of helps, doesn't it? Is this a big, big old army with lots of chariots and horses that everybody was well world-renowned? So he thinks... King of Assyria thinks, okay, he sent word again to Egypt. They've tried this in the past. They sent word to Egypt, and now they're getting some forces from the south to come up and take us. So now, all of a sudden, King of Assyria is a little bit afraid, and what does he do in his fear? He sends word, and he sends more threats. He sends more threats to Jerusalem. Listen, there's nothing you can do. Call on Egypt. Go ahead. Call them to come help you. It's not going to help. There, no one can deliver you out of my hand. I've destroyed every nation before you, and you will fall too. This is what he promises. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, this is verse 14, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord again, and he spread it before the Lord, the letter from the king of Assyria, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now stop. Now, here we go. This is what his response should have been to begin with. So it took a deepening. You see, it took the distress getting worse in order for Hezekiah to realize what God wanted his response to be. He wants his heart to seek after trust and help in the Lord, in the Lord alone. And so he receives this message. He takes the letter. He reads it. He immediately goes up to the house of the Lord. He spreads it out before the Lord, and he bows and he prays to the Lord. Let's listen to his prayer. Here's what he says. 
starting in verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God and you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone or the Lord. <clears throat> Let's just summarize, kind of go through what he's saying here before we talk about it. He has a truth statement about who God is, verse 16. He's reminding himself. Do you ever have to remind yourself about who God is? O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you are enthroned above the cherubim. You are God. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth, including Assyria, right? Including it. There is no king but you. And so even though I'm, I'm afraid, I, I admit I'm afraid, but I have to remind myself, there is no king who is over you. You are king of all, king of all the nations, kingdoms of all the earth. You are God alone. For you have made heaven and earth. And then he says, so because you are who you are, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now, is he really asking God to hear something he didn't previously hear? Or see something God didn't previously see? Say, so, oh yeah, I wasn't paying attention. I'll go back, I'll rewind and go back and look and see what he did. That He's not calling him to look at something he hasn't looked on before or hear something he's never heard. What he's doing is he's drawing attention to the thing that has caused distress in his heart. That's what he's calling God's attention to. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Here's where his faith is lacking. And then he makes, in verse 18, he makes another statement. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and other lands. True? Isn't this what he's done? He's wiped out all the other nations, and so wouldn't you naturally be afraid? If a tornado is coming down the street and it has wiped out every single house in a row and next is yours, wouldn't you say, well, it's coming right for me. It's done this to all the other houses. Sure, I'm afraid that it's going to wipe me out too. Wouldn't you naturally think that? I have only reason to believe that I'm next. But I have to remind myself that you are God. He can't do anything without you. He can't move an inch without you. So Lord, hear. Hear the situation. So he says in verse 19, They've cast all their gods into the fire, but, he says, they were no gods. They were the work of men's hands. They were wood. They were stone, and so they were destroyed. So you, God, you can't be destroyed. You're not wood. You're not stone. You're not something that men have made with your hands. You are God alone. You are the true God. So now, O Lord, verse 20, save us from his hand, because we know you can, because of who you are, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. But the king of Assyria was trying to convince the world otherwise, wasn't he? The king of Assyria was trying to convince the world that he alone was the Lord. He alone was the king. He alone has power over this world. But no, not true. I want to look at verse 21, and then we're going to pause for a few moments. Isaiah 37, verse 21. Listen to this. So this is, this is really the hinge 
right here. This is, this is the point. This is the main thrust right here. So Hezekiah prays, and here's what happens next. Verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Stop. Stop right there. We need to ask a few questions before we move on. Because you have prayed to me, this is what I will say, and this is what I will do, and this is how I will act. The question is this, what happens when we pray? What happens when we pray? A few just questions to think about, okay? What if Hezekiah had not prayed? Because God says, because you have prayed, here is the response. Because you have prayed, here's what will happen. So what would have happened if he had not prayed? Was it important that he prayed or was it not important that he prayed? Just, just think about it. Could God not have accomplished these things without the prayers of Hezekiah? Did Hezekiah effectually change the course of history by his prayer? Did Hezekiah cause God to change his mind by his prayer? I think we need to consider some of these things. Ultimately, who is the one that caused the Assyrians to flee, God or Hezekiah? God. Did God intend to do something different and Hezekiah made him do something to the contrary? Was Hezekiah smarter than God? If Hezekiah, that would imply that there are multiple options for the course of history, wouldn't it? If God had intended to do one thing and then Hezekiah prayed and God said, oh, well, that changes everything. Okay, so scratch everything I was thinking about. Because you have prayed, let's do this instead. Is that, is that how we're to understand it? I think we would say no. I think there are two, and I just want to briefly touch on these. Because and here's, here's, here's why I'm going to talk about this, by the way. This, what I'm about to talk about for the next five minutes may seem incredibly uninteresting to you. But the reason that we need to discuss it is because I want to protect the people in this room from theological error and thinking about God in a way that he is not. Thinking that God is one thing when he is not. Or thinking that prayer does one thing that it does not do. We need to know who our God is and be protected in our own thoughts and the way we understand things because it will change the way you pray. I promise you that. If you can with me, look at these things. It will change the way that you pray. It has changed the way that I've prayed from the beginning of this week until this morning, until this moment. I hope it will do the same for you. Two theological dangers to avoid. Number one, you may already know this one, open theism. Open theism basically says that the future is open. Here's a summary by a guy named Matt Slick. This is a theological danger, by the way. God can only know that which is knowable, and since the future has not yet happened, it cannot be known exhaustively by God. Instead, God only knows the present exhaustively, including the inclinations, desires, thoughts, and hopes of all people. That's open theism. Okay? God knows the present exhaustively. He knows all that there is, but because the future has not yet been, he doesn't know. That's what open theism says. So pause and say, well, yeah, 
Certainly, yeah, okay, move on to the next thing, done. Don't worry, that's not a danger for me, but yes, it is. Because how many times do you pray thinking that the future is uncertain? How many times do you pray and think things are out of control? God, change the future. Change, change what's happening. I don't want this. Make it go away. And we tend, I think, even if it's a tendency to think, that is not the way. Now, we need to be careful with this statement, but that's not the way God wanted it to be. We have to talk about the will of God in that situation, the revealed will of God or the secret will of God. Of course, we can't know the secret will of God. Those are things that only he knows. I don't know the intentions and desires of your heart. Sometimes you don't either. Now, God's perceptive will, that is, his will given in precepts, do not murder. But has it ever been God's will that someone be murdered? I certainly hope you think yes. Otherwise, the crucifixion, who knows about that? Was it God's will that Jesus be murdered? Yes. Was it God's will that Jesus be murdered? No. Because murder is not the will of God. But yet it was the will of God for Jesus to be murdered. Okay, so we have to understand the will of God in these areas. He is God. He is not like you. He is not like me. We need to stop thinking that God is like us. He is God. He is holy. That means he is completely and wholly other. He is not like you. He is God. Here's just a little quote from Gregory Boyd. I want to make that he, he is the main proponent of open theism. And he says this, It is true that according to op the open view, Things can happen in our lives that God didn't plan or even foreknow with certainty, although he always knew there was a possibility. This means that in the open view, things can happen to us that have no overarching divine purpose. Whoa. But let's look at the other side. Has anything ever happened to you that did not have an overarching divine purpose? Ah, there you go. That is why you tend towards open theism. There was no purpose in that. There was no plan in that. Everything, everything, everything in your life has had a divine purpose. So this is one option, one danger that we could fall into when we pray or when we think about how God is interacting with human history is that God is just working now. And when things happen, he works in the midst of it. He's working now. He's working everywhere. But he doesn't know or plan or, or, or can determine the future with any certainty. Absolutely not. Okay, so here's another, the other danger. Maybe you haven't heard of this one. This is called Molinism. This one was presented by a guy named Louis de Molina. He lived in the... 1500s, so about the same time as the Reformation. But here's what he proposed, is that the options are open. God knows with certainty every possible option that could exist for every possible thing that could exist. But it's up to us to kind of dictate which option we go with. It's called middle knowledge. The middle knowledge of God says this, that there are possible worlds in which God's eternal decree doesn't come to pass because libertarian free agents do otherwise than he had planned. Libertarian free agents means this, that 
we are free in such, to such an extent that we can do anything and absolutely anything we want to do because we are completely and wholly unhindered, even by God's will. This is what Molinism would say, okay? That God has a few options in mind, and it's just up to us to pick the options and choose the option, and then God will kind of deal with whatever he's been given. But he's still God. Absolutely not. So I hope these seem a little absurd to you. Hopefully they seem absurd enough to reject them and to know about them so that you're not led into them. Here's a little summary I want to say about prayer. And if you don't understand this or um, maybe at first sight see what this might mean, then I'm, I'm going to go through this a little bit. But here's what it says. This is my summary. What happens when we pray? Go to that next slide there, Daniel. God has determined to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. This is what happens when we pray. We do not give God information he does not already have. True? We do not cause God to form new or fresh purposes. True? I have a quote here from A.W. Pink that I thought was very helpful. Here's what he says concerning prayer. God has decreed the means as well as the end. And among the means is prayer. Even the prayers of his people are inclined to his eternal decrees. Therefore, instead of prayers being in vain, they are among the means through which God exercises his decrees. That makes perfect sense. Because you could live in a fatalistic world that says, why pray? Because God's going to do what he wants to do anyway. And then the other side of it says, I better pray because God won't unless I do. Those are two extremes that we can't live in. But instead, we need to understand prayer in such a way that God has ordained to use our prayers to bring about His means and His purposes. I want to give you several passages of Scripture um, uh, as kind of a summary to see if this is a biblical concept or not. Okay? I'm trying to convince you right now that this is the way that it works. Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27. I have all these on the screen, but uh, you should write those down in your notes to go back and review. Isaiah 14, verses 26 through 27, it says, This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? So in this passage in particular, whose will is this concerned with? The will of the people or the will of God? And if it is concerned with the will of God, what people on earth could possibly make God's will not come to pass? He is purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who's, who is there who can turn back his hand? The king of Assyria? Can he mess up God's plans? No. Remember, keep this story in mind. We're coming back to the story. We haven't left the story. We're coming back. Remember, because he prayed, here is what the Lord said. All right? That's, that's the context we're talking about. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning in ancient times, things not yet done. Stop right there. Uh, defeats both of the dangers that we just talked about. If God declares the end of a thing from its beginning, are there possibilities about the way things could turn out? If he has declared the end of a thing from its beginning, 
Are there different options? Are there possibilities? By the way, he has declared it. He has not known about it. He didn't just see it. He declared it. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. Calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So even though people might have a particular plan in mind, say, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, luckily for us is that God can work in such a way where he frustrates the plans of people. The things that they purpose to do, God can say, no. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Whose heart, whose plans? God's. Proverbs 19.21, in fact, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I can say all day long what I'm going to do in the next five minutes. But it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If you walk through life thinking that you know for certainty even the next ten seconds, you are wrong. So if that's the case, what of prayer? If it's the Lord's counsel that will stand, if he will accomplish his purposes, if he has his hand stretched up, what of prayer then? Might as well throw that out the window if he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. But is that how the Lord has made such a thing? 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Why is that little caveat in there? Because it's his purposes that will stand. But did he use those prayers for the sake of his will and for the sake of his purposes? Why else would Jesus on earth have been praying if the Lord did not use prayers to accomplish his purposes? And finally, and I, I know we've kind of beat this down now, but Romans 8, 26 and 27, you might say, okay, if I ask anything according to his will, he hears me, but how often do I pray according to the will of God? I don't know the will of God. I've prayed so many different things and they haven't come to be. Obviously, I'm not very good at praying things according to the will of God. Uh, yet that's true. Why? Because we are broken. We are sinners. And so we need help in prayer, don't we? Romans 8, 26 and 27, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. What is the as we ought? According to the will of God, that's the as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. How? According to the will of God. Among his multifaceted purposes... If you think, if you look back and you say, ah, I finally figured out why that happened to me 10 years ago, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> you just came up with something in the moment that you thought sounded right. We, we don't know the full counsels of God. Now, you may see one thing that you consider good to come of that. Fine, take that for what it's worth, but don't think that you know the mind of God in that matter. 
at least fully, because God's plans are multifaceted. There are so many different things that God can accomplish with one. You've heard of, uh, you know, killing two birds with one stone. God can do more than that. And in fact, he does. In his multifaceted purposes, understanding that it wasn't this alone, but multifaceted, God used the Assyrians to bring about a day of distress for Hezekiah, which led to Hezekiah's prayer, which led to Sennacherib's downfall. So God pushed Hezekiah to his distress, and he knew where to push him, pushed him so deep that he found himself only being able to pray. And when he prayed, God used that prayer of distress to accomplish his purposes, which he had planned. Now, let's read. Isaiah 37, 21 through 29, within that context. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have mocked and reviled against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights and its fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Pause right there for a second. God is reminding Hezekiah, of the ridiculous nature and character of Sennacherib. Sennacherib wasn't the one reading these words. Hezekiah was the one reading these words. He's reminded him of the evil of Sennacherib. Now, listen to verse 26. Remember, remember verse 21. Because you have prayed, I did this, but now listen to what God says in verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago, that I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass? Amazing. What all did he determine? Did he determine that Hezekiah should pray? That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inheritance, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and tender grass, like the grass on housetops blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency have come to my ears, here's what God will do. I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back by the way in which you came. What happens when we pray? Well, this one, I timed it here. How long does it take to pray that prayer of Hezekiah? I, I, I read it a couple times. On a slow reading about 55 seconds. On a pretty quick reading, I mean, you could read that in about 30 seconds. A 30-second to one-minute prayer and 185,000 people die and an army is turned away. We're going to read that. Look at this. Verse 30. And this shall be the sign for you. This is God still speaking to Hezekiah. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from that. And then in the third year sow and rape and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. 
All he's saying there is, after these things come to pass, listen, I'm going to prove that it was me that did it and not just chance. Here's what's going to happen immediately afterwards as well. And just as the fruit is going to grow, so are the people of Judah going to grow. That's what he's saying. So know that I did it. Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege and mount against it. Shall not. Is there any possibility that he will? Is there any possibility that he will shoot an arrow? There is no possibility. He shall not. Verse 34, by the way he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And here's what happens, verse 36. After all of this, we're building a, such a climax, and the writer gives us the climax in, in, in one verse. One verse. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, all these were dead bodies. This is what the Lord accomplished. Why didn't he just do that to begin with? Has anybody else thought of that? Why, why didn't, when they started coming south towards Judah, just, just wipe them out? But did God have a purpose in all of this? God have a plan. Did he have perfect timing in this? Could his perfect timing have been messed up? I hope you see the answer is no. So then it says, we finish it out here. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and he returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. So there's a series of events that when he heard, I love the series of events. Remember, God made a promise. He was going to do two things. One, he was going to make the king of Assyria hear a rumor that would make him go back. What made him go back? The rumor? Or the 185,000 dead? Well, the 185,000 dead, but what led to that? Hezekiah's prayer. And what led to Hezekiah's prayer? The rumor when he sent messengers. Isn't that amazing? So that is what caused it, but there was a line of events that God brought about. But there's another promise he made. Also, here's what God will do. The king of Assyria will die by the sword in his own land. Have we seen that happen yet? No, nope. he moves back to Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, his sons with crazy names struck him down with the sword. And after that, they escaped into the land of Ararat. Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. End of story for now. Is God still working out his divine purposes today? Certainly he is. Why did he do these things? For the sake of his name and for the sake of his servant David. Why for the sake of his servant David? God made a promise to David. I'm going to read that. We're going to end here with God's promise. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, this is God speaking to David through the prophet, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. Now, if Judah had been wiped out by the Assyrian army, would an offspring of David been able to come? That's a question. Would an offspring have been able to come if they were wiped out? No. So God wouldn't have been able to fulfill his promise that he had made. But there is someone coming. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then, of course, in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. God was doing something to bring about salvation through Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning, first of all this, that if you have not placed your faith in the God of this universe, today is the day to do so. He is the king of the universe, the king of history, and he is sovereign over his creation. There is not a thing that comes to pass that is meaningless. Meaningless. It can't be. But God is serving his divine purposes. But now, the thing you also need to know about God is that he is good. And that he has good purposes for you, even today. We trust in him, and we give thanks that he has brought about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it is by faith in him and by through grace that we've been given that we have Jesus Christ. I hope today that as you're leaving, that your prayers... Your faith in who God is as the sovereign creator and king of this universe will grow and will change. Because when you pray, you are not just praying to someone. You are praying to God, the sovereign king of the universe, who is working all things out according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 2 says. This is our God that we serve. This is our God that we sing. And this is why we come together. And this is why we spend 51 minutes and 22 seconds in his word together because who else in this universe has spoken that we should listen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us and speaking to us.